Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, let's talk about the drive to transition to 100% electric vehicles in British Columbia, all across Canada. Let's take a look at what's happening in British Columbia. The Zero Emission Vehicles Act from the David Eby government. So this would now accelerate the deadline here to go to 100% EV. 2035 would be the deadline now. That would be 100% new vehicle sales, okay? So these are new vehicle sales, all light-duty trucks and and commercial vehicles sold would have to be electric vehicles by 2035. Is this possible? Here I got Sondra and Fenaretta standing by to discuss. Have a listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. They've got the same target day at the federal level, too. Have a listen. With the kind of demand and the kind of solutions being brought forward by the auto industry, uh, it would surprise. It wouldn't surprise me for us to reach some of those targets ahead of time. Okay, so he thinks that we could actually get there even quicker. I don't know, man. Not according to some of the industry insiders I've talked to about these deadlines. They think that a lot of people think it's unrealistic. Okay, let's discuss it now with my guest, Sondran Fanaretta. Sondran is an auto industry analyst. He is very popular on social media. I recommend his TikTok, Cars with Sondran. Got over 400,000 likes on there on TikTok. Sondran, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for doing it. Okay, so 2035 electric vehicle sales targets here now. Like, how many of these EVs are we selling right now? And can we get to 100% in that time frame, do you think? Look, I think this is, uh, it's all about going to be supply and demand on having the best product there for the consumer, right? And I think 2035, really aggressive timeline. I think about a couple things that are affecting EV adoption right now in Canada. Number one is still a lot of manufacturers are supply constrained with the chip shortage, right? We're still seeing that. I actually had a friend trying to get a Toyota Prius, for example, one of the most popular hybrids there are, and that's not a full EV. They have to wait a full year for, to go ahead and get that vehicle. There's still a lot of that issue. Number two is the charging infrastructure around Canada. From the West Coast to the East Coast, it's still not sufficient today. So it's about making sure Canadians are provided with the right type of product in terms of their vehicle. And then naturally that demand will come. I think the government kind of playing a little bit of enforcing these rules, they're, uh, they're taking a step of really punishing automakers when they should be, in my opinion, taking steps to support them in the need to create the best product that the consumer wants. One of the problems I talked to you about, Mike, that I faced with a full EV was in Canadian winters, ranges decreased by 30 to 40, even 50% on some vehicles. So there's always going to be this kind of balance, but I think there's a lot of headwinds to get to a goal like that so quickly. Yeah, that's a really great point, especially if you take a look at the coldest parts of the country, uh, the northern Canada, the, the prairies. I mean, is are electric trucks really an option in those parts of Canada, especially with the range anxiety we people have, the battery performance, the lack of charging infrastructure? What do you think about that? Like, it seems to me this could be a regional, a regional problem as well. 
Yeah, it, it is a regional problem. And I think like the, you know, the government is looking at the technologies and hoping that certain technologies go ahead and improve. But the other thing is, if the technology is there, there needs to be enough supply to give that to the majority of Canadians as an option to buy. So at the end of the day, they're doing this to help support the environment. But if it's not in enough people's hands, it's not going to make the actual impact that the government's expecting, which is why personally, I think, and they've done studies to this, that if you look at an EV option, where it requires, let's say, for an example, a sixth of the electronics materials, and you can make a much bigger impact on the you know, pollution, which is what we're trying to stop here. I think an approach where you look at hybrid and EV together is probably the best thing to do. But I know the government's really right now focused on making sure by 2035, all these manufacturers just sell full electric. And I think what we're going to see, Mike, is the consumer at the end of the day is the one that is purchasing these vehicles. So we're yeah. going to have to see a, a really good shift in sentiment that consumers feel comfortable with a fully electric vehicle supporting their needs in Canada specifically. If we were in California, Mike, I think this conversation is different. Yeah, let's have a listen to, we've talked to a lot of industry leaders on this, and I'm picking up a lot of concern. A lot of people are dubious about these deadlines. Have a listen to Blair Qualley here. He's the head of the New Car Dealers Association of British Columbia. This 2035 deadline was recently moved up by the BC provincial government. It is going to kick in much sooner now. And there are penalties for automakers if we don't meet these deadlines. He is dubious about this whole thing. Have a listen. Blair Qualley. There's a whole question of, of rural British Columbia and the availability of charging infrastructure yeah. there and uh, low-income folks uh, that may have some challenges with uh, purchasing these vehicles to meet these targets. I think the consensus is this is way, you know, this is going too far too fast. Okay. Too far too fast. That's the head of the New Car Dealers Association of BC. And Sander, and he, he talked there about the affordability of these vehicles. These electric vehicles are expensive, right? Yeah, we haven't even touched on that fact. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. These electric vehicles are expensive. We've seen the prices of these vehicles kind of spike up in the last couple of years. They've come down slightly, but generally they are more expensive. And with today's interest rates, it's even harder for consumers to go ahead and afford these EV vehicles. And that's just touching on the actual vehicle itself. A lot of people also forget then that you most likely need to make the investment into your home to build in the charging infrastructure so that you can actually charge it at home. So yeah. there's still lots of these headwinds. Not only is the price of these vehicles much more expensive, there's a supply shortage of it and then interest rates because most people buy their cars through financing. And now more than ever, it's still a struggle. And of course, interest rates will fluctuate, but I don't think we're going to see 0% interest rates in the foreseeable future anymore, right? So in general, de demand will come down a little bit as purchasing power drops. Okay, it's a great point about the charging infrastructure, especially in people's homes, because a lot of people, they will have to increase the capacity of their home to put in a car charging station. And then you've got situations where older buildings like strata buildings, condo buildings, apartment towers, a lot of these older buildings, that is going to be very, very difficult to retrofit these buildings and put in all these charging stations. Right? Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing is, for people that are renting, they may not have permission from their landlords to go ahead and install 
these systems inside of the complex that they're in or the home that they're in. So they're going to even more heavily rely on the public infrastructure, which we know is severely underdeveloped today. And I personally think the plans today that the government has set out to make the commitment investment is not enough at all, right? If we think about the amount of vehicles that they say they want to go ahead and invest in, it's going to take a significant amount more of resources to go ahead and support this 2035 mandate where all new vehicles are electric cars. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking to Sondran Fanaretta, cars with Sondran on TikTok, YouTube. He's everywhere on social media. Okay. So when we talk about, you, you touched on this, this is all about the environment, right? This is about climate change. This is about greenhouse gas emissions. We've got to save the planet here. Do you have any thoughts, Sondran, on whether these electric vehicles are all that they're cracked up to be when it comes to their environmental impact? Because, man, you start talking about some of the the minerals that are required. we got to dig up out of the ground to build batteries and whether the power that we're using to charge these vehicles up is even clean power. I mean, if if you're burning coal in some jurisdictions to generate electricity and that's what you're using to charge your electric vehicle. I mean, how is that green? Anyway, your thoughts. You're, you're absolutely right. I think there's the, the one problem with the source of the energy. And I think a lot of people kind of want to keep it out of sight and out of mind. If it's, you know, happening in another country where they're extracting minerals and polluting the world. Um, we have to think about that because we're trying to drop emissions. And by the way, 10% of emissions that Canada releases are related to cars and light vehicles and trucks, 10% of total emissions. But we need to think about, okay, we're going to bring in all this infrastructure, we're going to start charging, where is this energy going to come from? And you're absolutely right, it's not going to be all clean energy. So the problem is still going to come down to this fact of the source of energy being clean or not. So that's one. Two, the materials and the minerals, you're absolutely right. We're seeing in these other countries where significant investments are being made to extract these metals, these precious metals that are required and they're not doing it in the most environmentally friendly ways. You're uh-huh. absolutely right. And so these are the other things that people need to keep in mind when you're thinking about investing in an electric vehicle. While I think absolutely the future, there's benefit there, but we also need to look at the entire supply chain. Where is this electricity coming from? Yeah. Yeah. And here's my final question for you. Like, If we are going to hit these targets, I've talked to people in industry who are dubious whether we can build these vehicles domestically, whether in Canada or North America. This is something that Blair Qualley said to me on a, on a recent show from the New Car Dealers Association. He was like, well, hang on. Will we have to import a bunch of these cars. Maybe they'll have to be built in China. Like if we're actually going to meet these EV targets, these very aggressive targets by 2035, if we can't build them all, someone's going to have to build them. So would they have to be built in somewhere like China? It's definitely possible. And I think, you know, while the government has made significant investments and provided subsidies to existing manufacturers to build in Canada, that's how they were able to do it. And there's a limit to that internally within our organization and our government. So yes, eventually we're gonna get to the point where we may have to start importing from China. Actually, a lot of the major manufacturers, if you look at total output of EV sales, the rising manufacturers are now coming out of China and they're looking to get into the North American market. So we may see that in the next couple of years, you may start seeing Chinese manufacturers starting to offer their EV vehicles to the North American market, and specifically in Canada, then the question becomes, again, 
How are they building these vehicles? How are we sourcing the electricity for these vehicles? Are they going to be part of a total plan to reduce emissions for Canada? But the yeah. funny thing is, I keep talking about, we're thinking about can Canadians reducing emissions, but we have to think about the entire supply chain because emissions are being made elsewhere in the world and we're all sharing the same world, Mike. Yeah, right. No, it's great points. Sandra, and thank you for coming on with your thoughts and analysis today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. My next guest is Pierre Polyev, leader of the Federal Conservative Party, leader of the official opposition in the House of Commons. He is visiting British Columbia today. Very pleased to welcome him back. Thanks you. Thank you for coming on today. Great to be with you. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Let's start with the carbon tax here now, because this issue continues to cause trouble for the Trudeau government here ever since uh, Justin Trudeau announced a federal carbon tax pause on home heating oil. Most people here in British Columbia heat their homes with natural gas. No carbon tax break for them. Pierre Pauly, have your thoughts on that? It's outrageous. Um, you know, Canadians are forced to choose between eating and heating after eight years of Trudeau and the NDP raising their taxes, taking their money, punishing their work and driving up their uh, bills. So what I'm saying is let's ax the tax for everyone everywhere. Now, Trudeau is saying he wants to give a carve out, but just for some people in some places where his polls have plummeted and his caucus was revolting. Uh, I say we're all Canadians. We all deserve the same treatment. Let's bring in uh, tax-free home heating for everyone, everywhere, regardless of how they heat their homes. How would that work in British Columbia, though, where we have a provincial carbon tax that would not be impacted by federal policy here? How would that work? Well, this is where the NDP and Liberals are really co-conspirators, that carbon tax coalition, as I call it. Uh, the NDP in B.C. is implementing the federally mandated carbon tax. So the feds have a law requiring each province to bring in a carbon tax on heat, gas and groceries. Yeah. Um, in many provinces, uh, conservative governments have fought back and said, hell no, we're not doing it. So the feds have forced it there uh, directly. But here the NDP has been going along with it. All it would take is for both Trudeau and EV to agree that home heat should not be taxed and they could lift that tax tomorrow. Yeah, what about climate change though? Because the, the comeback, of course, from the Trudeau government is, well, hang on a second here. We've got to save the planet. We're in a climate change crisis here. Uh, we've had wildfires. We've had floodings here in British Columbia. I'll play a short clip here for you. This is Trudeau going after you in the House of Commons. Let's listen, then I'll get your response here. It is shameful that the Conservative leader has no plan to address a crisis facing all of humanity. That leader has no plan and no vision. Perhaps he should put his glasses back on. Okay, Pierre Polyev, what do you say to him? Well, I, uh, I don't need glasses to see that Canadians are, are not uh, affording the basics of life, and that's doing nothing for our environment. In fact, Trudeau is admitting that his carbon tax doesn't work, by virtue of the fact that he's taking the tax, he's pausing the tax on the highest emitting form of heating, which is oil. So yeah. if he believes that getting off oil does not require a tax, then why does it require a tax for cleaner natural gas? My common sense plan is technology 
not taxes. So that means we green light green projects like offshore wave and tidal power, like uh, small modular nuclear reactors, which feed emissions-free energy onto our grid using clean Canadian uranium, that we approve more hydroelectric dams, uh, that we incentivize and approve carbon capture and storage so that our energy sector can put the carbon back in the ground where it came from. These technological breakthroughs will allow us to bring down emissions and the cost of living. It's common sense. Let's bring it home. Okay. I listened very carefully to a debate between you and Trudeau on on this point in, in question period the other day. And on this point of technology, we could use technology to fight climate change. He frequently comes back and says, well, you opposed wind wind power production off the coast of Atlantic Canada. That's a frequent. Not true. What, what, is, the, what is the facts on that? He just made it up. He uh, he's false. Uh, we're we're in favor of all forms of electricity. In fact, the truth is, and you can very easily Google the news article about this. He's the yeah. one that brought blocked offshore tidal power in Nova Scotia. His fisheries department took six years to give a non-answer to a private company seeking to use tidal wave power to feed the Nova Scotia grid with clean, green energy, and they just didn't give an answer on whether it was approved, so the company said, to heck with it, we're leaving. We're not going to wait around for six years. So I'm the only one who has a plan to green light green projects that will replace uh, um, carbon emissions with uh, carbon-free energy. Speaking of replacing, where would you, how would you replace the revenue generated by the carbon tax right now like in british columbia this has become a big revenue generator for government it's like three billion bucks a year in carbon tax revenues to government so if you got rid of that where what would replace that that money well first of all i will answer your question but i just point out the fact that you have to ask that question proves that the carbon tax was a fraud remember it was supposed to be revenue neutral yeah. It wasn't supposed to generate any revenue. It was supposed to help the environment. Now we know it's a $3 billion cash grab in B.C. So what I would say is that the NDP, which has, has ballooned government spending to build monstrous bureaucracies, uh, should control itself rather than digging deeper into the pockets of British Columbians. The same is true for Trudeau, who's grown government spending by 60%. He's increased the bureaucracy by 50% alone to deliver to deliver poorer services to our country. He's wasted uh, $52 million on an Arrive Can app that doesn't work, a billion dollars on a green slush fund that his own officials say is reminiscent of the sponsorship scandal. So maybe if they stopped wasting so much money, they wouldn't need to punish seniors for heating their homes. Okay, well, if you take a look at the revenue generated in British Columbia, though, $3 billion bucks now, if the... If David Eby was here right now, he'd say, well, a lot of that money does flow back to British Columbians in terms of tax credits and things like that. But it's still a net generator of of revenue to government. I'm just wondering, where are you supposed to? That's a ton of money, man. Like he He's saying if you get rid of the carbon tax in B.C., you'd blow like a $5 billion hole in the budget here. You're not buying that? Look, I, 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 I'm not buying it. Look how much he, the NDP increases spending year after year after year for their pet wasteful pet uh, 
projects. Liberals and NDP believe they know better what to do with your money than you do. I believe the opposite. The the carbon tax, the high income taxes are punishing people for working, eating and heating. It's time to axe the carbon tax. Yeah. Speaking to Pierre Polyev, leader of the federal conservative party, getting closer to as we get closer to a federal election. Are you expecting a a down and dirty, nasty campaign here? Like I've just noticed that the federal liberals have started to fight back a little bit more vociferously against you. You seem to really get under the skin of Trudeau in in question period. Are you expecting a, a lot of really negative, like mudslinging and attack ads? Yes, Justin Trudeau is a very nasty and divisive leader. He's divided Canadians. Uh, He attacks people who disagree with them. Um, He's really a vicious partisan. I'll be keeping playing the high road, taking the high road and and focusing on my common sense plan. I expect both he and Jagmeet Singh will be very nasty. Um, And that said, though, you, you know, you said there could be an election. Well, that's up to Jagmeet Singh. He keeps bailing out Trudeau. He's betrayed British Columbians. He said he was going to work for B.C. when he moved out here from Ontario to run for a seat. What has he done? All he's done is sell out B.C. to back Justin Trudeau and helped him double housing costs. He's helping him quadruple the carbon tax. He's helped impose higher income tax, all on on the backs of British Columbians. Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have sold out B.C. It's time for common sense conservatives to stand up for this province and country. Did you see the federal liberal tweet they put out comparing you to Trump? This was after the the viral encounter you had with a BC reporter here while you were eating the, eating the apple. And he started asking you about, about Trump and, and you seem to kind of own him really and that sort of went viral even outside of canada but it's interesting like the federal liberals quick quickly jumped on that and said well actually he he is like donald trump so let me i'll play a very short clip here for you from the liberal ad here on social media here let's listen we have to stop with political correctness woke political correctness defeating the radical left radical leftist authoritarian agenda yeah, so they jumped right on that. Oh, he is like Trump. What? How are you going to defend yourself on that? They're just distracting. I mean, my common sense plan make it works for Canadians. I I want to bring home lower prices by axing the carbon tax and ending the inflationary deficits so that we can bring down interest rates on struggling mortgage holders. I want to bring home powerful paychecks with lower income tax. The, that rewards hard work and allowing our brilliant immigrants to take a blue seal exam so that they can prove their qualifications to work as doctors and nurses. I want to bring homes people can afford by requiring cities boost home building by 15% per year uh, or lose federal money or get a bonus if they beat the target. Uh, I'm going to remove bureaucracy to build homes people can afford so that Vancouverites are not forced to live in homeless encampments. All of that is common sense. And Trudeau doesn't want to face my common sense ideas because he knows people agree with me. So he's mm. distracting with uh, ridiculous attacks like that one. I ask people, who, what do you think about the extremism of Justin Trudeau saying that he admires the basic Chinese communist dictatorship? He admires Fidel Castro. He wants to quadruple the carbon tax. He wants to ban hunting rifles 
while legalizing crack cocaine and heroin on the streets of Vancouver. Justin Trudeau is the one with the extreme radical agenda. He doesn't want to debate his agenda, and that is why he's attacking me. Well, are you, but I I suspect we're going to see more of those style of ads, right? Especially with the polls the the way they are now. We will see aggressive negative attack ads, and I suspect we'll probably see an advertising campaign from the Liberals sort of comparing you to to Donald Trump. And when you said you were going to take the high road, are are you saying you, you would not run negative ads against the Liberals? I will run fact based ads fact-based ads that tell the truth about Justin Trudeau's record. So I'll give you some examples. He doubled housing costs. It's not an attack. It's just a fact. He doubled housing costs. He's made Vancouver the most expensive, sorry, the third most expensive housing market in the world. He has doubled the rent. He wants to quadruple the carbon tax to 61 cents a liter. Justin Trudeau wants to decriminalize crack and heroin while banning hunting rifles. These are the policies that the NDP has, has helped Justin Trudeau bring in. So those are just facts. They're not attacks. He, he can't even deny them. My common sense plan is the opposite. I'll bring jail, not bail for repeat violent offenders, treatment, not decriminalized drugs for addicts, and I'll secure our borders to keep illegal guns and drugs out while protecting lawful hunters and sports shooters I want to have a debate on those facts. He wants to distract with smears that focus on different countries that don't apply to Canada. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Listen, it's just common sense. Let's bring it home. talk about the epidemic of drug smuggling into bc prisons now how do they get drugs into bc jails well it's not like you have to put a file in a cake anymore you do it by drone just fly a drone over the jail uh, drop the drugs into the prison yard you could also smuggle in cell phones that way weapons by drone just fly over the wall B.C. prison guard saying this is rampant, out of control. We also have drug use and overdoses inside prisons. Two inmate overdose deaths at Mountain Institution in Agassiz recently. I've got John Randall standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report. This is happening everywhere, including south of the border in the United States. Have a listen to this report. This is from Fox News. Security video shows recreation time for inmates, but watch this guy, looking up, following something. He wanders around for 20 seconds, then he grabs for something falling from the sky. Soon as it hits the ground, he covers it. Investigators say a drone dropped a phone and marijuana. You know, there's a new generation of people going to jail now, so they're going to find a way to do something. Barbed wire at the top of walls and fences? That certainly won't stop someone from flying over and dropping something inside a complex. Yeah, yeah, barbed wire on top of a fence. That's not going to stop a drone. Let's discuss it now with John Randall. John is the Pacific Region President, Union of Canadian Correctional Officers. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, John, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi there, thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. John, how big of a problem is this now? This sounds like this is getting worse, and it's happening a lot. 
it is the worst uh, I've seen in my career. And I know that people have worked before me. They say this is the worst time for drugs and weapon introduction to prisons. Wow. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about that. So the, the, uh, the drones that are dropping drugs into BC prisons, how often does that happen? We're, it's basically we're saying it's a daily occurrence now, if not multiple times a day. Um, the drone traffic is out of control and, uh, you know, depending on like at the maximum security, we're seeing it multiple times a day. We're seeing with the level of drugs in these mediums now, we're saying it's a daily occurrence there now as well. But multiple times a day. So it sounds like, yeah, it's like, it's like there's drones flying over these prisons all the time. What can you do to stop it? Is there anything that can be done to stop it? A hundred percent. There's the technologies out there that uh, have drone detection systems. Um, you know, the federal government keeps talking about a pilot project that they're going to do or, or put in these systems, but we've seen nothing yet. So right now we're relying on officer presence and, and really correction officers diligence to try and catch the drones. And, and like I say, we're catching some, but I, I feel like for the few that we're catching, there's probably two or three times more getting in. Yeah. And you, you think it's getting worse, right? How long have you worked in the system now? Uh, I'm in my 13th year as a correction officer and yeah. I've never seen it like this. Um, you know, when I started 13 years ago, there was not even the talk about a drone dropping drugs in. Now the drones are flying it right to the cell windows. So that's the level of, of, uh, technology and, in, uh, basically ingenuity they're using now. Okay. Fly to the cell window. Th- that's interesting because I often, I pictured in my mind that you would have prisoners out in the yard, maybe getting like their exercise and a drone would fly over the wall and sort of drop it into the prison yard. But you're saying that these drones can fly right up, what, right up to the bars on the windows? Yeah, that's the, how good the technology has become is that we've seen instances where the drone will fly right to the window. The inmate can reach his hand out the window between the bars and grab the package. Wow. Okay. What kind of drugs are coming into the prisons? And it, I, I, it's not just drugs, right? Did you also mention like, is there cell phones? Is there, are there weapons being smuggled into prisons now by drone? All of the above. Yeah. Drugs, mm. uh, obviously fentanyl is probably the drug of choice right now. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, and then the weapons, uh, we're seeing ceramic knives. We're seeing, uh, regular pocket knives coming in. Uh, we're seeing cell phones, like the level of cell phones we're seeing is, again, higher than I've ever even imagined would be in prison. Yeah, and if you have, like, okay, if a guy has a cell phone inside a jail, let's say they're part of organized crime in a gang or something, they could they could probably continue their criminal enterprise from right in their cell if they've got a cell phone. 100%. We, we know, like, the intelligence shows that, that these criminal organizations, especially the gangs, are conducting regular business from inside the prison cell because of the number of cell phones. Yeah. Does that also raise the risk of potential escape? Like if you've got a prisoner with a cell phone and if they have to leave the jail for some reason for a medical visit or something, they could alert people on the outside. Is that a, that their potential prison break situation could be coordinated by, by phone? Is that a concern for you? 100% 100% it's a concern for us. Just yeah. anything like that, whether it be a medical or escort or anything. But yeah, the, the level of knowledge and, and, and communication with the outside world is not 100% controlled by us anymore. And that's a huge concern yeah. and the public safety concern. 
Speaking of John Randall, Union of Canadian Correctional Officers, drug smuggling into B.C. prisons by drone. And we've also got drug use going on inside the facilities, John. Let's talk a little bit about that because the headlines coming out of Mountain Institution in Agassiz there, but there were two recent overdose deaths there, correct? That's correct, yes. Two, two in a span of seven days. Yeah, and tell me about that because I know that I've, I saw one headline where you described this like this has been a couple of weeks of hell for you guys at Mountain Institution in Agassiz. What's going on there? Well, that's just it. Like Mountain being a medium security institution, um, you know, it's wide open. And we generally don't see the level of drugs that we're starting to see there, which is, which is part of the red flags that we're raising. Um, and in that two-week period with this bad batch of drugs, and we're not really sure exactly how much, you had officers dealing with these two overdose deaths and obviously the, the medical interventions that come with that. They're searching to try and find the drugs. We had, you know, I'm going to say conservatively uh, 10 to 12 inmates uh, overdosing. So you have officers dealing with first aid, getting them outside hospital. It was just, it was two weeks for the, the correctional officers there where they were uh, running nonstop, trying to A, find the drugs, and B, stop more inmates from dying. Wow. Oh, my God. This sounds incredible. John Randall, Union of Canadian Correctional Officers. Hey, J- John, what are you asking for now? What do you think should be done about this? We need them to really take seriously stopping drugs from getting into the institutions. Um, CSC, the Correctional Service of Canada, seems to have it uh, in their minds that, hey, Drugs are going to get in, so let's make it easier for them when they're in to do the drugs. And that's a problem for us. We want to put resources and the technology in. Let's stop drugs from coming in. If you stop drugs, stop cell phones and stop weapons, then none of these other problems are attached to it. That's what corrections really is. That's our mandate. Mm. What do you mean they they want to make it easier for the inmates to do drugs? Like, Are they bringing in like needle exchange programs and stuff in there? That's correct. They, at, at Mountain, just weeks before these two deaths, they announced that they'd be doing, they'd be uh, implementing a prison needle exchange program there. And in that program, it would be giving inmates access to needles to use in their cells, um, which is just mind blowing to think that in federal prison, we're going to give inmates needles to do drugs alone in their cells. So we've, we're saying, hey, that's got to stop. The emphasis has got to be stopping drugs. Um, cause like say just all the side effects that come with giving an inmate a needle is, is out of control. Okay. Last question for you, John, you're, you're calling for some effort to stop the, these drugs from getting into the jails. If they're coming in by drone, I, I saw some coverage in the United States of some very high tech systems they had for detecting drones flying over the jails and almost looked like an air traffic control situation where they're monitoring the skies to see an incoming bogey coming in, you know, with drugs. Is that what we need? Do we need some sort of monitoring of the airspace over the prisons? hundred percent. That's exactly what we need. The technology is there. We know that a U.S. corrections is using it. The problem that you hear in Canada is that there's so much red tape and there's so much bureaucratic stuff that's stopping them from just implementing it. Um, so, like I say, the systems are there, and we just need the resources now. John, thank you for coming on today. No, thank you very much. Have a great day. I'm telling you, man, that conversation there I just had with John Randall, president of the Prison Guards Union, boy, that sounds 
just out of control there. The amount of drugs coming into B.C. prisons, the amount of drug use overdoses uh, that we're seeing in B.C. prison cells. Let's discuss it further now with my guest, Alan Mullen. Alan is a for former correctional manager, Kent Maximum Security Institution. Very pleased to welcome him back. Alan, thank you for coming on. Pleasure as always, Mike. Okay, Alan, this sounds like it's just off just off the chart here the amount of drugs that are coming into bc prisons right now i like i know you saw a lot of it in your day right at kent institution and elsewhere but it sounds like it's a lot more right now absolutely i mean you, you said it mike it's out of control and it's deeply deeply concerning i mean i i, I don't know what the answer is here but you know a hundred thousand dollars seized at, at mountain institution just this past week and you and i spoke you know recently about a quarter of a million at kent i mean they, these are crazy numbers yeah, I mean that is so. What is that? That's like a hundred thousand dollars worth of contraband that was seized, right? Yeah, so they'll they'll, they'll do the institutional value on whether it's you know drugs or, or whatever the case, cell phones, etc., and then they they put a, a value on it. So that's that's the number that that we're hearing. But I mean, I I don't know about this drone thing. I mean, I, I hear what the, the correctional officers are saying and CSC is saying, but I mean, are these drones air carriers? I mean, how how does a drone carry that much? So I think there's a bigger issue, you know, than just drones. I think I think the conversation needs to be about, you know, all areas of the institution that, that these drugs are getting in. Because, yes, drones are a problem, but they're not the only problem. Yeah, so there's smuggling going on in a more traditional fashion, too. Is that your your thought on it? No question in my mind. I mean, even if there's a couple or three drones every day, you don't get that level. I mean, correctional officers do an amazing job of, of routine searches and exceptional searches, etc., when you find that amount, it's not just drones. Uh, there, yeah. There's, you know, the traditional through admissions and discharge. There's, you know, through through visitors. And unfortunately, and we all hate to say it, we all hate to admit it, at times, uh, staff. And there's a lot of staff. I'm not just talking about correctional officers. There's a lot of staff that work in these institutions. And it, it's a problem. It's a problem in, in every institution across the country and across the globe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there could be there could be people on the inside that are facilitating bringing material into the prison for sure. Speaking to Alan Mullen, he's a former correctional officer, Kent Maximum Security Institution. How do you stop these drones, though? Like I just spoke to uh, John Randall, who said basically we need air traffic control over these prisons in order to stop these drones from coming in. I mean, is that the answer? I mean, I think it's it's probably the only answer. I. I you know, I don't know what time of day they're happening, but you mean you can't have, <clears throat> excuse me, you can't have officers watching the sky, you know, 24-7. That's just not going to be, it's not going to be effective. And, and yeah. as John said to you, there is the technology available. Um, you know, it is expensive, but it's worth it because the, the, the risk to public safety with these drugs in the institutions uh, and, and institutional safety and security it's worth it. Uh, you know, the federal government has got to step in here and speak to the commissioner of CSE and say, look, you tell us what you, what you need and we will give it to you. Because yeah. otherwise, correctional officers are, are in danger, inmates are in danger, and we're going to see more deaths and we're going to see issues in the public. We're, we're, it's just not going to get better unless the federal government steps in. Unless they put over some screening or, or mesh or netting over the over the the jails or these institutions to stop the drone drops from from coming in and there's got to be some kind of answer what do you think about facilitating drug use by prisoners in, in the in these jails like we heard john randall describe a needle exchange program 
um, at Mountain Institution in Agassiz, where they've had a lot of overdoses recently, and they don't like that idea. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, I'm not a fan of that either. I mean, you know, the mandate, is, as John referenced, of corrections is is to rehabilitate offenders. And, you know, you want you want to get these folks off drugs. Not, You know, that's like saying, well, we know fights are going to happen, so we may as well set up a ring for them to do it in. It's it's the same sort of concept. Yeah, we know they're going to do drugs, so we may as well just give them needles. And we always hear on the streets, don't do drugs alone. But yeah, we're saying to these federally incarcerated inmates, do drugs alone in your cell. And then, you know, the officers are finding them them deceased. Uh, It's just, it's it's crazy to me. There's methadone programs, there's programs to help them get off the drugs. And now they're talking about, well, let's supply them safe safe, uh, opportunities to to inject uh, heroin or whatever drugs they're using. Uh, I think it's crazy. I think it's a terrible idea. Uh, and again, how is that facilitating the mandate of CSE to, you know, sort of get these folks back to law-abiding citizens when you're saying, hey, just sit in your cell on your own and do drugs and we'll help you do that. Okay, we're following this closely. Alan, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Pleasure as always, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.